If you have your Bibles, uh, take them and turn to the book of Genesis, um, Genesis chapter uh, 37. I had wanted to read a lot of scripture today, but um, we just uh, don't have time. And so there's a few things that I really would encourage you to do um, over this next week that will help you begin to immerse yourself into the life of Joseph. Uh, one is to pick up your Bible this week and start reading at chapter 25 and come up to chapter 37. That will really be the focus of uh, the message today is on the family history of Joseph. Uh, but then to familiarize yourselves with jo um, Genesis chapter 37 to 50, which is the life of Joseph. And we will be here um, for some period of time. Uh, when we last looked at a book of the Bible, it was the book of Revelation. And the book of Revelation, as many of you know, is the last book of the Bible. And in that particular book of the Bible, we have come to understand it to be the culmination of the plans and purposes of God, contained in the scroll that Jesus took from his right hand in Revelation chapter 5. The book of Revelation really covers the last days, which are the period of time between the first coming of Christ and the last coming of Christ. And it describes how all the promises of God are fulfilled in Christ in these last days. And as we have said when we were in that book, that Revelation is the climax of prophecy. It is the fulfillment of all of Old Testament prophecy. Well, now we step back and we go to the first book of the Bible, which is Genesis. And that's where it all began. And we are uh, the, the world has been created, and uh, we are now into the very early parts of the history of mankind and God's ways with his people as he has called Abraham out of the Ur of Chaldeas. And now he is beginning to say that there will be a redeemed company of God that will be more than the stars of the heavens. And so what we're doing now is we're going to the beginning of the story, and we're going to be looking at how is it that God works out his plans and his purposes. There's a particular verse that uh, we'll refer to from time to time, Genesis 15, verse 13. It was a promise that was spoken to Abraham when he was probably 98, 99 years old, uh, long before Joseph was ever born and before the people of uh, Israel ever made their way to Egypt. And there the Lord said to Abraham, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. A couple of things that off the top of my head just jump out there. First of all, that oppression and enslavement are not a threat to the fulfillment of God's plans. In fact, they are often part of the fulfillment of God's plan. And here is God making a promise to Abraham that was at least 180 years before Joseph was ever born. And that promise would be fulfilled through God's work in Joseph's life. We're about to enter into the story of an incredible young man. A story that we really understand 110 years of his life. He lived 110 years. It's a story like few other stories. It is full of uh, just an array of emotions. And you read through the book of, or the life of Joseph, and you will be struck by the, the emotion that is in the book. There is the emotion of hate and love, of impatience, of patience. There is um, murder, there is rape, there is unbelief, there is callousness, there is despair. 
Um, there's all different responses to the circumstances of life that we see evidenced in the history of Joseph's life. And so it is an incredible story of human life, of the highs and lows that come to each one of us as we walk on this side of eternity. The story of Joseph's life really fits into what is the 10th book of Genesis. There are 10 accounts in the book of Genesis. They're the, the, the Toledeths, or these are the accounts of, and this is the last of 10 books that divide the book of Genesis. And so this is the account of the life of Jacob. It just so happens that Joseph's life takes up a great portion of the account of Jacob's life. As I look at it, there's three sections to the life of Joseph. Uh, the first section is from his birth to 17 years of age. That would be what we would call the formative years, and that will be the content of our time together this morning. Uh, the second section of his life is from 39 year, or from 17 to 39 years, and that was what I would call his character-building years, although his character was already being built in the first 17 years, but those were his years where he was alone. Um, sold into Egypt, enslaved, imprisoned, um, and then raised to the second in command of Egypt. And for 22 years or so, he was on his own. And then we have the last years of his life from 39 to 110 when he died, and we will call those the years of blessing. And so there's three sort of ways in which we can view his life. What I want to spend time on today is the first 17 years of his life formative years of his life, years in which God was beginning to lay the foundations of the providence of God, of the care of God, or the way that the promises of God are fulfilled in the midst of all kinds of circumstances and sin and despair and stuff that we thought there would never be a chance for God to work, and yet God works. And he has built into the life of this young boy from birth to 17 the building blocks of a confidence in the providence of God. And this is what I want us to wrestle with as a congregation for the next number of months. I think we're ready for it again. We were introduced to the providence of God years ago when we went through the book of Esther. An incredible story of the way God worked in the life of a queen and Mordecai and a kingdom that was set against destroying the Jews. And God is not mentioned once in the whole book of Esther. And yet we see the hand of God at every event and every page and every circumstance of that book. And so now we come back to the providence of God as viewed through the life of Joseph. I want you to think about the providence of God. Uh, there's a couple of definitions that I think are helpful in a context in which we are losing touch with this significant teaching of Scripture. Dr. J.I. Packer defines biblical providence this way. He says it is normally defined as the unceasing activity. Right there, that's an incredible statement. The unceasing activity of the Creator. God, who created the heavens and the earth, the unceasing activity of the Creator, whereby in overflowing bounty and goodwill, He upholds His creatures in ordered existence. He guides and governs all events, circumstances, and free acts of angels and men, and directs everything to its appointed goal for His own glory. Is that your God? 
Do you believe that that is what God does and his way in this world? One who never ceases to be involved in our activities of this world, upholding it, guiding it, governing it, all events of all free acts of all creation. Or as the Westminster Shorter Catechism divines providence, as God's most holy, wise, and powerful, preserving and governing of all his creatures and all their actions. In other words, there is nothing of any created thing in this world that is outside of the governing, preserving work of God in their world and in their life. Preserving means that the earth would not and could not exist without God's permission and his active involvement in every single atom that moves around in this world and universe. Governing, God is in control. Remember, we've talked about the throne in the universe. God governs the course of nature and history to his predetermined goals and plans. And then concurrence, which simply means that God is working with even the tiniest events of nature and history to bring about his purposes. Do you believe that? Do you believe that in your life? Do you believe that in the circumstances of your life? Do you believe that every single circumstances of every moment of your life is under the guidance, care, control, and direction of God? That is what the scripture teaches. Finally, if there's a verse that I want us to attach all of this to in the New Testament, it would be one that we're very familiar with. Romans chapter 8, verse 28. And we know, do you know this? And we know that God causes all things, not some things, not just the big things, not just the really important things in our lives, but all things to work together for good to those who love God and are called according to his purpose. I want us to grow in that confidence that at the end of our time in Joseph, we will be able to say with greater assurance, I know that God works all things or causes all things to work together for my good because I love him and have been called by him. The first 17 years of Joseph's life, Joseph growing up. I can remember 17 I wish I didn't. And many of you here can remember when you were 17. There might be a few here today that actually are 17 years or give or take a, a year or two on the other side of that. When I was 17, my life was a mess. I was in turmoil. My body was changing. My world was changing. We had moved from uh, uh, Victoria to Saskatoon. I was in a new school. I was in a new environment. There was so much going on in my world that was, that was coming to bear upon me at 17 years of age. And there was also 17 years of moves and transitions and life experience that was poured into me that created who I was at 17 years old. I was fascinated going on to the internet how many songs there are in popular culture that speak about 17 years. It's a significant age in our culture. We still believe that today. And so I want us to fill in what made up the first 17 years 
of Joseph's life. These are just some of the highlights of his life. For many of us, none of us here today can say that our great-great-grandfather was Abraham, that our great-grandfather was Isaac, and that our dad was Jacob. You gotta imagine the kind of stories that filled that little boy's life as he sat around family meals. It's a verbal culture. That's how they passed life on, was through stories. The hours that they spent with their dad and their grandfather as they walked shepherding sheep and as they stayed overnight and watched the stars come up and go down and the stories that were shared and what filled the memory and the heart and the mind of that little boy as God was shaping him from such a young, young age and pouring into him as a boy that would soon be 17 years old. You can look about some of the stories of Abraham, stories that Joseph would have been told as a young, young lad. You can tell about the stories of his grandfather Isaac, stories that he would have been more familiar with. He would have been familiar with the story about how his grandfather found his wife Rebecca and what an amazing series of providences it was how God had led his grandfather's servant to find this girl, an amazing act of providence as God led him to his wife and how they rejoiced in their relationship together and then how his grandmother had been barren and unable to have children and how his grandfather had prayed for her and God had answered his prayer and opened her womb and granted her a set of twins is it a set of twins I guess we call it that right yeah a set of twins Esau and Jacob born at the answer to prayer. And then how over time there had been favoritism that had developed in this home. How his grandpa had loved Esau and how his mother had loved his father and the tensions that that brought into the home. This is real life stuff. Some of you understand those exact tensions in your home, but there was favoritism in the home. And then the story about how his dad had stolen his uncle's birthright one day and and then about as how his dad had lied about his wife being his sister and how God had still protected them and then how his dad had once again deceived his uncle into getting the blessing from his grandfather and all these stories would have been whirling around in the young head of this little boy as he's growing up filling him with things and questions and ideas and a picture of God and the way that God leads and the way that God guides. And then there's the story of his great uncle Laban, his, his, his mother's brother. And I'm not sure of how many of you know the story of your family as well as he did, but here's this incredible story of Joseph as he's learning this stuff from his family and he comes to know these truths and he hears about how his uncle Esau hated his dad and he hated his dad so much that his parents said to his his dad you need to leave here and you need to go back to your great uncle Laban's and how God protected him as he fleed from the hatred of his brother to get to his great uncle do you know what Jacob's name meant and I we have nicknames and uh, I, I don't think there's any dads here whose nickname is Chiseler or deceiver but that was his dad's name that was his dad's um, nickname that was his dad's character he was a chiseler he was a deceiver and you can read about the many deceptions of 
Jacob over his life. And then God changed his name from Jacob to Israel, which means God strives. And on the way as he was fleeing, I'm sure that Jacob would have told his son at some point about the dream that he had and the incredible story of God's assurance and the dream that he saw of a ladder going up and down to heaven and how God said, I will bless you and provide you and I will bring you back and how that probably fixed in that little boy's mind and he thought, really? Can God do that? Did God do that? He must have because I'm alive and God had brought him back. And then this incredible story of his dad's 20 years with his great uncle and as he started out he arrived and he was single and he said I want to come work for you great uncle and his uncle says well what shall I give you for wages and his eyes kind of went around and they fixed on Rachel says, give me her she looks good she's beautiful and so Laban says to her okay or him okay work for me seven years and I will give you Rachel in marriage and we know the story, do we not, as we read the scripture, that the wedding night came, and it must have been a night of feasting and of partying and of celebration. And uh, the, the night comes, and Jacob goes to bed, and his wife is delivered to him. And lo and behold, he wakes up in the morning, and Leah's there. And he thinks, what's happened? And he goes to his uncle, and he says, why have you deceived me? And he says, well, I can't marry the younger daughter before the older daughter, so if you work for me for another a week or seven years, I will give you Rachel as well. So after a week, he gave him Rachel. And then how in the story, the family goes, how, how um, Joseph or Jacob loved Rachel but hated Leah. And the tensions that would have grown up now in this family of this hatred for um, his mother's sister but his love for his mother and the way that that would have impacted the dynamics of the home and then we have the other two wives who fought for Jacob's affection or uh, opportunity to sleep with him so that they could provide a child for their um, uh, the, the one that they served and so at the end of this all we've got four wives we've got 11 boys we've got one girl and we've got chaos and this is what Jacob grew up around. And then, all of a sudden, we have this incredible escape that takes place from Laban, which we'll come to for a moment. Can we imagine a more dysfunctional family? Can we imagine a crazier way in which a young boy can grow up and be shaped to prepare for adulthood? And I wonder what was going through Joseph's head as he heard these stories and as he lived through these experience, God's promises, God's protection, God's provision, my father's deception, my, my father's hatred, my uncle's hatred, my uncle's deception, this just chaos in his home. And then we come to when he's six years old. Some of you have vivid memories of being six years old. You can remember events and conversations and things that took place in your home. All of a sudden, here we have Jacob, or Joseph now at six years old. And all of a sudden, there's this, this chaos in his house, and his world is about to be turned upside down in a single day. Maybe he had picked up pieces of a conversation between his dad and his mom. Maybe he could see the uncertainty, the wrestling. You know, your kids, even at six years old, have a great 
antenna about what's going on in your home. And they sometimes sneak around doors when you're not aware of it, and they listen to your conversations. They can see the way that you carry yourself, the heaviness in your face. They know what's going on in your home. And so there's this tension that's taking place in his home. And nothing would prepare him, though, for the urgent proclamation of his dad to his mom and his family. Hurry! Take down the tents. Pack up your bags. Load up the camels. We got to get out of here. And as this is going on, all of a sudden, he sees his mom go into his great uncle's house and she steals his idols. And he goes, Mom, what are you doing? Or maybe he just watched her in amazement as she stole from her uncle's house and tucked those things in their bag. And then all of a sudden, they're just gone. He hasn't yet been able to say goodbye to his uncle. He hadn't been able to say goodbye to his friends. They're just launched on these camels and off they go. And then what he would have thought when his uncle caught up to them and he hears the conversation. Why have you taken off on me? Why didn't you let me take, say goodbye? And why have you stolen my idols? And his father responds, I haven't stolen your idols. And if you find the idols, I will kill the person who has them. And his little heart is just exploding. He's saying, no, my mom has those idols. But as God's providence guides Laban and uses her own deception, his mother's deception, and Laban doesn't look in her saddlebags. And God protects and preserves his mom and the family. And no sooner had they got over that trauma, and there's another trauma that's on the horizon. You come to Genesis chapter 32, and again, I don't know if they'd even been settled down. And uh, Joseph is still trying to process this, this rapid departure and what has all taken place. And now all of a sudden, he, he's known about the hatred of Esau to his father. He's known about how his father deceived him and stole from him. And now he hears there's Esau with 400 men coming. Can you imagine what is going through that little boy's head? Here we go again. I'm going to die. We're all going to be chopped up. We're all going to be killed. I know how my uncle hates my father. I know how my father ran from him. And all of a sudden, he sees this dust storm. His dad is terrified. His dad is distressed. He, can't, he splits up the family into two groups and then all the animals, and he separates them out. And he says, Mom, what's going on here? Mom, why has this happened? Mom, why am I being separated from my brothers? Mom, what's dad's doing? Mom, what is happening? And all of a sudden, his dad disappears. And then he sees his dad in the morning, limping. Mom, why is dad limping? And over the course of a few years, I'm sure he heals, hears the story of why his dad is limping. But no sooner is his dad there, and as they say, this great dust cloud starts to form on the horizon. And he can feel the panic. He can feel the fear in his family and his dad as they set in. And all of a sudden, there's this man running to his dad. What's going to happen? And rather than pulling out his sword and hacking him to death, he throws his arm around him, and they start weeping together. And he's saying, Mom, what is this? What's happening? Is dad all right? Why all the tears? Why all the joy? 
And then I think to myself, what's going through his brother's head? His brothers had been separated out with Rachel's sister, and they had been set ahead of everybody so that the first group of people who would be killed by Esau would be Leah and her sons. And if they survived, or if there was any strength left in Esau and his men after they slaughtered that group, then maybe they would get to Rachel and her group. What is going through his brother's head as they begin to process, well, my dad was willing to sacrifice us for the wife he loved and for Joseph. What's going through Joseph's head? I didn't believe, I can't believe that after so many years, God can bring reconciliation. I heard about the hatred of my brother for his brother, and yet look at them hugging and tears flowing through their eyes. Maybe it was preparing him for what would happen in his own life 25, 30 years later in Egypt, when all of a sudden he sees his brothers. What went through his head as his father parades his family, all his goods before Esau and says, this is God's gracious provision for me. What was he thinking when he heard his dad saying, I have enough? He's seen the turmoil of his life. He's seen the craziness of the last number of years, and yet God is at work providing and guiding. And then the unspeakable happens. A few years later, maybe five or six years later, his sister is raped, and a whole village suffers with the life of every man. It's difficult to know what was etched into the memory of Joseph as this event sort of began to influence and fill him. Likely, he was around, as I say, 12 years old, 11 years old. His oldest brothers were, uh, his oldest brother would have been 19 or 20, old enough to fight. His sister would have been about 14 or 15 years old, old enough to marry. As Joseph process this did he did he begin to look at it through the lens of wow there is just a lot of craziness going on here god had told my dad to go to bethel and rather than my dad journeying with a focus to bethel he stopped along the way he set up his tent towards shechem much as lot had set up his tent towards sodom he shouldn't have stopped there and as his dad had set up tent there, he had failed to model appropriate distancing from the Canaanites, and he exposed his daughter to a curiosity that would be her undoing. And it says in verse 30 or in chapter 34 that she went out to see the women of the land. The women of Canaan were known, or even the whole Canaanite culture was known for its sexual looseness and defilement. It was notoriously sensual. And she went out to visit the women of the land. What would have filled his mind as he thought about this? And after his daughter was raped, and I believe the scripture said she was raped because it says Hamor saw her, seized her, laid with her, and humiliated her. And after this happened, his father did nothing. He sat passively while his children were in the fields, waiting for them to come back. He appears indifferent. Here's Hamor and his dad negotiating of how they might resolve the situation, and Jacob is silent. Then there's the slaughter, and then there's the confrontation of Jacob with his older sons. Jacob says to Simon and Levi, you have brought trouble on me by making me stink to the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites and the Perizzites. 
My numbers are few, and if they gather themselves against me and attack me, I shall be destroyed, both I and my household. He's only concerned about himself. He's only concerned about his own safety. He's expressing no concern about his daughter. And then they said, should they treat our, so our daughter, our sister, like a prostitute? Jacob appears more passive and more concerned about his own personal safety than he does about his daughter. What's a young boy to think? What's a boy of 11 and 12 years old to process as he sees this unfolding before his eyes? And what of his father's words after this? Then let us arise and go to Bethel, which he should have gone to in the first place, so that I make, may make there an altar for God who answers me in my day of distress and has been, me, been with me wherever I have gone. See, even in the overall, above all of this, there was still this confidence that God was with them, leading them and guiding them. Life is messy, isn't it? It can be full of pain. It can be full of passivity. It can be full of per, poor decisions mixed with good decisions. It can be full of blatant sin. And yet, can we confidently say that we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him? And then tragedy upon tragedy. Chapter 35. Such a difficult chapter. Three deaths and a brutal betrayal. We've had three deaths in our congregation this past week alone. It's heavy. Some of you were a child when a brother or sister passed away, or when a mother or father passed away. That's a difficult thing to process, isn't it? Your, your mind is flooded with questions. First of all, we read in verse 8 of chapter 35, and Deborah, Rebecca's nurse, died, and she was buried under an oak below Bethel. This would have been somebody dear to Joseph, likely his wet nurse, certainly his nanny, the one that probably raised him alongside of his mother. He had an intimate relationship with her. She was as close as a mother would have been to him. What a body blow. But at least he has his mother, and at least he has a, a, another sibling that's on its way. And then we read in verse 18 to 19, as her soul was departing, we say, whose soul? So Rachel died. Wow. It's a lot for a young boy. Questions filled his mind. Fears filled his heart. Sadness engulfed his home. Could you imagine the tent? This was the wife that his father loved, gone. And what's a boy of 12 or 13 years old to do with that? First his nurse, now his mother, and a newborn to care for as well. And then verse 29, and Isaac breathed his last and he died. He was gathered up to his people old and full of days and his sons Esau and Jacob buried him. That's my granddad. Man, I spent hours with. The one who loved me unconditionally. The one who walked me through the fields. The one who taught me so much. My granddad. I spoke with somebody a couple weeks ago who had lost two husbands, two children, and two grandchildren 
in the midst of a whole bunch of other sorrows in her life. I spoke with a little boy, six years old, a couple days ago, who had just lost his grandpa. Grief is heavy. Grief shapes you. And here is Joseph, a young boy, carrying the deaths of three people that he loved so dearly. And just when you think it can't get any worse, you read verse 22 of verse 35. In the midst of a home full of grief, the second unspeakable happened. While Israel lived in that land, Reuben went and lay with Bilhah, his father's concubine. And Israel heard of it. Incest in the family. How? How can it be? How can one home, how can one little boy have so much to process? Doesn't Jesus say in this world you will have trouble? But I have overcome the world. What incredible family dynamics for this little boy. All before he was 17 years old, four wives, 11 brothers, one sister, Hatred, love, on the run from Laban, on the run from Esau, a sister who was raped, a village that paid with their life, death, incest, a father who demonstrated passivity after one instance after another was unwilling to deal with things head on and face things in their home, very much like David who was a passive father in his home and created so much trouble for his own family. As one said, Jacob's household is dysfunctional because of his passivity. You know, fathers, if you are given to passivity, and I know many men are, I don't fully understand it, well, I do. But if you are given a passivity and conflict avoidance in your home, you're creating a context of confusion and chaos for your children. With God's help, you need to say, I'm going to turn the corner. I'm going to change. I'm going to be one who leads in my home. No matter what the situation might be, no matter what, what, no matter what the circumstance might be, I am going to take the bull by the horns, and with God's help, we are going to address this situation. May God help us as fathers and grandfathers not to be passive. All of this before he's 17. You wonder in your head, how is it possible for God to bring anything good out of that? But then I say, look at our families. Look at your family. Look at my family. Do we not see some of our own families in here? Pain, hurt, betrayal, hatred, joy, fear, death, rape, incest, passive death. God is working out his promises. God's promises will never fail. And God's word will never fail. The Bible doesn't sugarcoat life, does it? The Bible exposes the truth of life and says that in that and through that, God works in all circumstances and all events to bring about his purposes. I can't think of anything that is more comforting, more encouraging, and more helpful than to know that God can take the chaos of my life 
work out his pur purposes and fulfill his promises to me. One of the amazing things that we'll come to see in the life of Joseph is that he never blamed his family for the circumstances of his life. One I read said, if ever there was a young boy who by the age of 17 had enough basis for blaming everything on his past, it was Joseph, but he didn't do it. He somehow realized that more spiritual progress is made through failure and tears than through success and laughter. He realized that God's grace was greater than all the daunting complexities of his early life. I understand clearly that our homes impact us. The circumstances in which we grow up and the things that grow up around them shape us and influence us. And we don't have control over the circumstances, but we do have control over how we respond to those circumstances. And the biblical place to begin learning how to respond to those circumstances is through the providence of God and through the sure confidence that in all things God is at work. Jacob was anything but perfect. I'm so glad that the qualification for parenthood does not have to be perfection. Jacob was anything but perfect, yet God chose to use that imperfect dad to be a dad to the boy through whom he had purposed to be the redeemer of his people through the experience of Egypt. Loved ones, grow to trust God. God moves in a mysterious way his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea. He rides upon the storm. Will you trust anew and afresh in our sovereign, loving, providential God to bring about his good purposes in your life today until the day that you die? Father, we thank you for your word today. Uh, there's a heaviness to it, but there's also a confidence in it. I thank you, Father, that you don't run around and away from the realities of our life as people. I'm thankful, Father, that my sin and my passivity and my mistakes and my deception do not somehow overrule your promises and your purposes. And it is a mystery that I don't think I will ever understand how you can still weave your perfect will through my imperfect life. But I know you do it. I've seen you do it. And I trust you will continue to do it. So, Father, I pray today for any here who maybe in a spot of discouragement because of where their life is at and wondering, can you bring anything good from it? Can you salvage anything from it for them or from their, for their family? Father, may this word encourage them to trust you and help them realize that you are a faithful, gracious, powerful, providentially working God and you will complete what you start. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.